AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Welcome to Creature Feature, production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host of Mini Parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and today on the show, math! Okay, don't run away. I promise that even those of you who have, let's say, complicated relationship with math, the animals we're about to talk about will show how absolutely incredibly fascinating math can be. From mathematical bee sex, to baby animals who are cute little calculators, to the way that math can produce some of the most beautiful living works of art in the natural kingdom. These word problems are no problem at all. Discover this and more as we answer the age-old question, should you let your chickens count before or after they've hatched? Joining me today is astrophysicist and co-host of the podcast, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, Daniel Whiteson. Welcome back, Daniel. Hello. Thank you very much for having me on. I am happy to be described as an astrophysicist because I like to throw my mind out there into the cosmos of the universe. (laughs) And I'm also a deep lover of mathematics. When I hear math, I don't run screaming. I go, tell me more. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that, you know, sometimes some of us not naming any names, not pointing any fingers, uh, have a complicated history with math. It's like, you know, it it doesn't seem like, oh, this is probably not all that interesting because it's a bunch of numbers and a teacher getting mad at me for not putting them together in the right way on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. But it can be really, really interesting and even for 
people who don't have a big background in math. Like you don't, it's, you know, obviously some parts of math, especially like the more theoretical you get, it's, it's pretty sort of a dense labyrinth. But when you're kind of looking at the big picture applications of what it can describe and do, like that's accessible to everyone and it can be really interesting. Yeah. And in the end, it's the language of the universe. You know, it's not just the way that we like write physics down and do our theories. We think math is actually like fundamental. We think it controls the way things happen. So I love when we find things in physics or in biology or in economics that like reveal the underlying mathematics because it shows us like sort of the source code of the universe, like how things are really working deep down. Exactly. It puts the fun in fundamental. <laughs> it does. And so that's why it's so frustrating to me when I see my kids like developing an aversion to math. Yeah. You know, because I'm like, come on, math is fun, isn't it? And they're like, maybe, but math worksheets aren't fun. And, you know, <laughs> that's a good point. That's true. But maybe you can just take them out to a field and point at some bees and say, like, look, <laughs> they're doing math and you can too. <laughs> So there is a big paradox in evolutionary biology, which is that you have animals who seem to sometimes behave altruistically mm. and even go as far as to be eusocial. So eusociality is a social structure that is found in bees, ants, termites, naked mole rats, where a mostly non-breeding colony works for the good of the queen and for their fellow members of the colony. So it's this very... It's seemingly extremely altruistic, right? You're all working for the good of the queen, for the good of the colony without worrying about reproducing yourself. But this is a big problem because evolution seems like it should always reward genetic selfishness. So if, mm. if you can pass on your genes through trickery, thieving selfishness or whatever, that should just count. Like mother nature is not going to judge you. If you get your genes passed on, that's good enough for her. There's this famous Gary Larson cartoon that shows like a bunch of lemmings going off a cliff, which is a myth, by the way, they don't do that. But still, in this cartoon, one of the lemmings has a little inner tube and is kind of like mugging for the camera, looking very <laughs> smug because it's the one lemming that's going to survive this jump off the cliff. And actually, this cartoon was used in some of my evolutionary biology classes in college to demonstrate like, well, if you have this one lemming doing this thing, like cheating with this inner tube, all of the lemmings should develop this trait soon enough because that's that's going to be the types of genes that survive. Like the lemmings who wear the inner tube and survive the jump off the cliff should all develop that trait because, again, like if you survive, those genes are the ones that are going to win out. So I have so many questions already. First of all, you social, is that like the letter U in social or the word U or like you know, E-W-E, -E, social. It's E-U and then social. So it sounds a little bit European, but I'm sure it has another <laughs> explanation for it. But my real question is that, like, is selfishness really necessary? Like, do most species actually maximize selfishness? I mean, why can't a species get forward by being all nice to each other and just, like, enjoying life? Like, why don't they maximize the joy of sunshine and, you know, a drop of water on the leaf and something. Doesn't that make people happy and, and make for like happier and more successful children? Why is it all about selfishness? Well, you know, it, it's actually true that it turns out, I mean, we can just look around and see that, no, it's not true that all animals maximize selfishness. We can mm -hmm. look 
at humans. I mean, sure, we like to say, oh, humans are selfish, but when you really look at human society, we've only gotten this far by working together. And, you know, of course, like, there's all sorts of problems with society. I'm not going to get into any of those because that's probably a different podcast. But when it comes down to it, we are a cooperative species. We do work together in order to enhance our survival. And it's somewhat easy to see how this works out in our favor. Like we are not the toughest, roughest animal. We could not win in a fight one-on-one versus a bear. But when we're in a group, we do pretty well. And we all benefit from being in this group because if we are within the group and then we survive, we get to pass on our genes and our children who will have that same sort of cooperative framework. They're born sort of with the capability of having that cooperativeness and empathy. And then they're raised in the group. So it's Mm -hmm. sort of this interaction between uh, genetic selection and also social selection, right? Like when when you raise your child in a group, they learn the customs of the group and they learn how to interact with people. So we can see how through natural selection, kindness and cooperation can actually be beneficial to a species. Um, But there's this whole other problem when it comes to bees, ants, and termites, because they're not just a cooperative society like humans are, or humans should be, maybe I should say. (laughs) Individual humans have offspring. It's not just the king and queen of human society that have offspring. We're, We're all able to have offspring and it all benefits us to have a, a community that's that's safe and bountiful for our offspring. So working together, working together helps us all kind of pass on our genes collectively. Um, but it, with these with bees, ants, termites, and these other eusocial animals, the individuals in the colony do not reproduce. So you have your hive of bees, your colony of ants. All of the workers are females. The queen is female. The workers do not reproduce, generally speaking. And so it, it seems like, well, that shouldn't work out. Like, the, it should only select for the ants that are selfish enough to want to reproduce. Or, you know, I'm saying selfish in sort of a more evolutionary biology terms, not that there's like a little ant going like, haha, I'm going to reproduce. Screw the colony. <laughs> but it, it really should like favor that kind of sneakery or, and trickery, it seems like, because it's like, well, how else? Would these altruistic genes get passed on? Right. Why do they still exist if they're not getting propagated to the next generation? Exactly. Exactly. So this is a seeming paradox. In order to get to the bottom of this, I mean, there is a hot debate about this in the evolutionary biology community. I mean, I think it's still going on to this day. Like, I just read this, like, scathing research paper about, like, oh, well, these guys are all wrong about this and we can prove it. It's uh, one of the more controversial topics in evolutionary biology because it is such a fundamental thing that we have to figure out in order to fully understand how natural selection works. Well, why can't evolutionary biologists cooperate when they (laughs) research about cooperation, right? I mean, there's like selfishness in the research about altruism. That's ironic. They've got it. What Jeff Goldblum in The Fly, his problem was he didn't like put a bee in the other end of the transporter. (laughs) So he turned half bee because then he would actually be really productive and really cooperatively working on papers together in a hive of researchers. (laughs) So there are a few theories that I think you have to understand all of them to actually get the full picture of Mm -hmm. how 
this works. And and we've talked about bees and ants on the show before, and and I've kind of discussed some of these things in less detail in terms of like how the math behind this works. But right now we're going to like get really deep into it to get a full understanding about the math of bees and ants I've and never, termites and so on and so forth. <laughs> I've never been more ready. <laughs> uh, that is probably not going to be the only bee pun we do today, folks. So strap in. <laughs> Let it be. <laughs> so first, let's talk about the kin selection theory. So this is one of the few theories that helps explain how a bee colony could exist. And this actually doesn't apply to the one group of mammals who are eusocial naked mole rats, which we'll get into a little later. We'll discuss in more detail in just a little bit. But let's just focus on bees, ants, termites, these groups of insects that have a colony of worker females. None of them reproduce, just the queen reproduces. And somehow this remains a stable system. So the, the, so the workers are all female, like the males are not doing any work? Yeah, basically the males don't do much. They kind of sit around eating until they can go off and mate. And if they don't go off and mate, they actually get kicked out of the colony for being, you know, layabouts. <laughs> Too lazy to mate? Wow, that's quite a threat. I know, right? You'd think that just getting to eat food all your life and then going off and mate would be a pretty good <laughs> life. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, the only function males really do, I think that sometimes bees will cluster together and vibrate together to increase the temperature of the colony in cold weather. And I think males will actually engage in that as well. But other than that, they just kind of hang around and wait until they can go and reproduce. Basically, any bee you see going from flower to flower collecting nectar is like 99% chance it's going to be a female. So and you got like women at the top because the queen <laughs> is in charge. You got women doing all the work and the males are really just around to make more women, right? It's a very matriarchal society. Congratulations, men. You can finally feel <laughs> like you are, uh, you are being discriminated against in bee society. They're being held down by the honey ceiling. <laughs> So as we've discussed before on the show, bees, ants, and termites are what's called haploid diploid. So haploid simply means one set of chromosomes, whereas diploid means two sets of chromosomes. So we humans and most other sex-having animals are actually diploid. So we get one full set of chromosomes from our father and one full set of chromosomes from our mother. And we take all that, we scrumble it up, and that becomes us. <laughs> so that's why we're mostly XX or XY, for example. Exactly, exactly. And of course, like there are exceptions to this. Like right. there are uh, times when like there are children who will have XXY or like mm -hmm. these things. But that on, on average, most people get one set of chromosomes from their father and one set of chromosomes from their mother. Haploid diploid is a combination of haploidy, where you get only one set of chromosomes, and diploidy. So this is the way it works in these insects that are haploid diploid. So female offspring hatch from fertilized eggs and get a set of chromosomes from their mother and from their father, like a human. But male offspring hatch from unfertilized eggs, and they will only receive one set of chromosomes from their mother, the queen. So this means that sisters share about 75% of their genes with each other when their father is the same. 
And so this is kind of like a little bit of a jump in math. Like, wait, how does that work? Uh, because in humans, uh, it's kind of varies how much we're related to our siblings. On average, it's a statistical average of about 50%. You're going to be related to your sibling. Uh, and it the reason it varies, the reason we're not just like always 50% related to a sibling is that we are getting a random grab bag of genes from each parent through the process of meiosis. It's somewhat randomized recombination of genes when uh, our parents create their gametes. So we're getting this kind of like grab bag of stuff. And then we'll probably share a lot of those genes with our siblings, um, but it's somewhat randomized. So statistically speaking, we've got about a 50% chance of sharing those genes from our parents with our sibling. But there's a range there, right? Like in yes. principle, it's possible to have no genes in common with your brother if you just got like exactly the opposite version of every gene from each parent. Yes, it's and you theoretically could also be possible. And a twin. Yes, it's theoretically possible for that to happen. Uh, you can see like that's sometimes siblings look very similar. Sometimes mm -hmm. they don't look related at all. Mm -hmm. So you can and that actually even looking similar or not related at all doesn't necessarily mean that you're not genetically similar. You could share right. more genes with someone uh, who you don't look alike, like a sibling that you don't look like than you do with a sibling that you do look like. It just depends on whether you happen to share some of the genes that code for like eye color or hair color. Mm -hmm. People always tell me I look like Matt McConaughey, but we're not related at all, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. That, that wasn't a joke, the 0% right. joke. Right, no, I, that was a serious <laughs> laugh. <laughs> it was, it's just how stunningly similar to Matthew McConaughey you look. All uh, right, all right, all right. <laughs> yeah, so, right. So with our sibling, your sister or your brother or your whoever, mm -hmm. you're about 50% related. Statistically, you could be less or more depending on which sort of grab bag of genes you got from your parents when you were a little, when you were a little egg and a sperm and then those combine and then you, then you're you. Uh, with bees, it's 75%. That's way more. It's not always exactly 75%, but on average... That's how related they are to their sisters. Uh, so much more than humans. So hold on to your butts. This is where we're going to do some pretty simple, I would say, math, but it can get a little confusing. I definitely failed some of these quizzes in college because I like get sort of confused with percentages. But it's easier to do when you're looking at a diagram that somebody made using Pokemon bees. So I will include <laughs> that in the show notes Someone made this diagram. I think it's Combi and then like Combi's Evolutions. Um, I don't know what the names of those are, but it's a great diagram. So basically, the queen gives 50% of her genes to her daughter. And the father gives 100% of his genes to his daughter. How does that work? Well, if you remember earlier, what we were talking about is that males result from unfertilized eggs. They are haploid. They only get one set of chromosomes from their mother. So they only have one set of chromosomes they can give to an offspring. So when they are mating with a queen, while the queen has two sets of chromosomes and she can give you 50% of whatever chromosomes she has, the male only has one set. So he just gives you that. That's all he's got for you. <laughs> so this means that at least half of the daughter's genes are going to be shared with her sister's genes at a minimum because mm -hmm. she gets 
they they both got like a hundred percent of their genes from their father if they share their father. So the other half of her genes that she gets from her mother, that's a little more randomized. So she'll share about half of that amount of genes with any given sister. So that means that uh, of like her total chromosomal amount, like she'll of her mother's chromosomes, she has about a 25% chance of sharing that with another sister because it's half of a half, it's 25%. So let's see if I get this math right. So you're saying <laughs> that all the female sisters, they have the same gene from their father because the father only has one. So they mm-hmm. all have exactly the same one. They're like identical twins. But the other one, the one they get from their mom, they have one of their mom's genes. So they might share it or they might not. Right. Basically, similar-ish. I mean, it's a little it's a little more complicated because it's sets of chromosomes. And mm-hmm. when when the mother is actually creating her egg, it goes through this process of meiosis where there's some randomization. So females can actually share more or less relatedness uh, through their mother, whereas like they're getting... I think basically 100% of their father's genes because the father really doesn't have uh, the the amount of genes to play around with that the, the mother does because he only gets like one set of chromosomes and that's all he is. And, and when she makes eggs, like eggs are either female or male, right? Even though they have only one of her genes. So the male eggs, do they always get the same gene from her or do they get one or the other? They get, I think, a randomized gene from her. So they're unfertilized, so it's only getting its mother's genes. But I think it still goes through the process of meiosis. So the, the male offspring is still getting some randomized genes from its mother, but it's all, that's all it's getting. It's getting nothing from the father because it's unfertilized. So the eggs all have one gene, and then the male comes along, and when he fertilizes it, gives it the other one to make it female. But the male eggs never get fertilized, so they just stay one gene and stay male. I mean, I I would just say, like, instead of saying one gene, one set of chromosomes, because, like, there's many genes within a set of chromosomes. But, yeah, just, like, one set of chromosomes that it gets from its mother. Uh, Not 100% of its mother's chromosomes, because its mother has more chromosomes than the male even needs. So she that's going through that process of meiosis, such that the male offspring is getting, um, what is it? I think the male is roughly 50% related to its mother. Let me just double check on that. Sorry. See, this is why I failed these quizzes in college. <laughs> it's complicated. Oh, my gosh. It really is. I mean, it doesn't seem like it should be, right? Because you're dealing with very simple percentages, like 100%, yeah. 50%, 25%. But then as you get like a longer line of Bs and you're trying to figure out like how much this B is related to that B, it actually adds up to be quite complicated. So the queen will share on average about half of her genes with her, no, no, wait, she will definitely share half of her genes with her son. Weirdly, a male bee will share 100% of its genes with his mother because he's like 100% of his genes is his mother's genes. But for Mm -hmm. her, she's only half related to him because she's only giving half of her genes to him. it creates some really, really weird scenarios, too, where... Well, mothers and sons always have complicated relationships. <laughs> well, bees, male bees, can only have daughters. They can't have sons, but they can have grandsons. Because, again, like you have... Uh, when the queen is laying eggs and she mates... Let's let's call him Jerry. 
is is her maid. You can't <laughs> even really call him the king because he just dies after mating. He has no. Oh boy. Uh, yeah, exactly. He's got he's got no like uh, power in the royal society. So, but is that it? Like one time they mate and then they're dead. They ba- mate and explode. Uh, no so, wonder they. No wonder these men don't want to mate. <laughs> now I understand. <laughs> I do what now? Uh, so so the queen mates with Jerry, and Jerry dies. And uh, the the only eggs that the queen is going to use Jerry's DNA for are female because right. the unfertilized eggs do not use any of Jerry's DNA and those are the queen's sons. But Jerry can still have a grandson because one of his daughters uh, could grow up to become a new queen. Mm. And if she mates, she can have a son. And through the process of meiosis, some of her father's genes that she's scrumbling up to go into her son uh, could could ha- like that then will make that son uh, Jerry's grandson, but he can't have any sons, so he has got to skip a generation before he's got a got a grandson, which doesn't really matter to him because he's dead anyways. And so most of the queen's children have no offspring, right? Only if she That's happens right. to have a female child, which becomes a queen. Well, it's not even too randomized in terms of female uh, offspring becoming queens. That only happens if. They feed them royal jelly. And so, yes, most of the female offspring will not have uh, any offspring. And the way that this happens, one proposed way is that because because they're more related to their sisters than they are to, like, potentially their own offspring even, um, then it doesn't make sense for them to have to sneak around and try to have their own offspring when they're, mm. they share so many genes with their sisters that whatever altruistic gene they have, if they ensure the success of their colony and one of their sisters ends up being one of the new queens, it's like that increases the chance of all of these genes that they share of getting passed on to the next generation. So usually you think about the next generation and, and like I'm trying to lift up the next generation and support the ones that have my genes so they can propagate forward sort of down the evolutionary tree. But here these people will never, but here these bees will never have any offspring, but you're saying that they're related to their mom and to their siblings. And so they still have a sort of genetic interest in their mother's success, even if they're not going to have any kids themselves. It's not really that individually they have any interest in it. It's that the, it's whether or not the genes that they have yeah. uh, are the same genes that get passed on to the new generation and code for the same behavior. So it's yeah. like they're ge- like they're, these bees have no plans. They're not thinking like, well, if I help out my <laughs> sister, maybe she'll have a she'll become queen and have a son. It, it there's not like neither the bee nor the genes inside the bee can plan ahead like that or think like right. that. It's really like say you have. It's about the statistical probability that the genes that they have and they share that codes for the same eusocial behavior ends up getting passed on to the next generation. So it's, it's, it's counterintuitive because we really think about sort of intention with things like, like a kind of, uh, you know, I want to give my children a good life. I want to, you know, pass on sort of like good qualities to my children, like kindness and happiness and things. But, you know, in terms of natural selection, especially when you're looking at something like a bee, it's not a conscious decision of I'm trying to pass this on. It's it's like if those genes get passed on, you did it, you won. And those behaviors that got passed on through those genes are going to be 
replicated over and over throughout the generations. Yeah, and it's even deeper than that, right? Because you're saying that that behavior, caring for your kids, loving your kids, is really just a product of evolutionary pressure. That folks that ended up feeling things for their kids are the ones that took care of them and then propagating their own genes. It is. It is. And I know that for some people that may like feel like, oh, man, well, then we don't have free will and it, it's meaningless. And it's like <laughs> everything in human society is basically a product of evolution. But yeah. we have this kind of a unique ability to have some fun with it and to kind of have some decision. Like if, you know, as evidenced by the fact that people adopt children and love them as, as you know, their children because they are their children. And that has no like, you know, genetic uh, motivation. It's just because we have developed this empathy and this kindness towards other humans where we realize like, hey, you know, a family can be anything that we want it to be. So if anything, we're kind of like giving the middle finger to Mother Nature and saying like, hey, we're going to be nice whether you want it or not. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And not every behavior is perfectly sculpted by evolution, right? It's like if something develops and it's useful for propagating your genes, it might also have other effects which aren't harmful, like adopting children and also loving them. Exactly. Because we live in a society, as the Joker likes to say, but I also like (laughs) to say it because... (laughs) Through our society, we can actually achieve much more in terms of like propping each other up and helping each other survive in a way that takes off a lot of the selective pressures from us and allows us to be kinder and and have more freedom in terms of mm-hmm. what we choose to do with our behaviors, which I think is really lovely. Unfortunately, not the case for bees and, and ants and, and uh, also naked mole rats. And so this is where I get into part two of the explanation of what is going on. So unfortunately, kin selection is not the sort of tidy explanation that we would hope for where it's like, okay, so Mm. just like statistically speaking, like, you know, they share their genes with their sisters and that would, would be able to allow them to like, you know, those genes to survive. Uh, It's, it's not enough of an explanation potentially. And we see this because of the pesky naked mole rat, which is a mammal, uh, a little cutie that looks um, sort of like you took a hamster and shaved it uh, and uh, put it underground. Uh, Don't do that, anybody, please. Don't take (laughs) that as a suggestion. (laughs) Uh, They're wrinkly, they're flesh-colored, you know, they look slightly phallic, but they're really interesting animals. So uh, they are diploid, like humans, like Mm. most other sex-having animals, like all other mammals. Uh, they, you know, get a pair of a set of genes from their mother and from their father, all of them. There's none of this like weird genetic shenanigans going on for these naked mole rats like mm-hmm. there is for bees and ants and so on. But naked mole rats have a eusocial society, which shouldn't make sense, but somehow it works out. So they have one reproducing dominant queen and subservient worker females who do not reproduce just like bees and ant colonies. And and they kind of act in a way that's very similar to bee colonies, where you have the queen kind of passing on orders and bullying her underlings. So this brings us to another force that may help create youth social societies, and that's brutal tyranny. <laughs> so, wow. uh, Or perhaps more gently put the manipulation on the part of the queens. So both use social insects and naked mole rat queens use both chemical and behavioral manipulation to force their colony into compliance. 
So eusocial insects use pheromones often uh, that will suppress other females' ability to reproduce. So they have these pheromone signals that will actively suppress female uh, reproduction in their offspring. But we're and talking about bees now. Bees use bees. these pheromones. Yes. Because I thought that the female bees couldn't reproduce because they're not queens and they needed the royal jelly to be a queen. But you're saying that even without the royal jelly, they could somehow reproduce? Sometimes they can sneakily reproduce. While the pheromones do suppress their reproductive hormones, if you've got a bee that maybe is not getting as exposed to that, sometimes they do sneakily reproduce even if they're not queens. And that is met with the punishment of having their eggs eaten by the queen. So the queen will go around eating eggs that she finds that are not her own. So it is an extra safety measure to make sure nobody's reproducing but the queen. Uh, and even in terms of like once a queen hatches, right, and if she has other sisters that are being developed into queens by being fed this royal jelly, she will kill them to make sure that she's the only queen. Uh, there are very few instances where a colony can have two queens at once. That doesn't typically happen. Um, so like once the old queen dies and her pheromones are gone, uh, this signals like the bees to start creating, just feeding royal jelly hither and thither to like create new queens and to start reproducing until a new queen will emerge and reproduce for the rest of the colony. But naked mole rats, now they're was some research done to see whether they use pheromones to uh, for the queen to enforce her monarchy. That research's a little it's a little shaky. They're not really sure whether or not uh, there there was like some evidence that pointed towards maybe some pheromones excreted in the queen's urine that may have some impact. Uh, but there have been other studies that were like showing that maybe it doesn't have as much of an effect. What we do know, is that she will physically bully them. What? Uh, like any female that is uh, disobedient or, you know, is is trying to shirk her work or, or go off to mate somewhere, like will get bullied and shoved around and sat on by the queen uh, to like basically this, and this physical d dominance displays uh, seems to inhibit the female's reproductive hormones by basically constant bullying makes them less likely to reproduce. It actually it's inhibits the their reproductive. Yes. Wow. Inhibits their reproductive hormones. Um, so. And can somebody else take over? I mean, if it's just like physical dominance, can you get like a really tough, muscly one of these things that's born and eventually take over and be the new queen? Yeah, but generally, interestingly, it seems like that is often passed on, like the daughters of the um, queen, like, uh, it's usually, I, I think it happens like when the queen is older and like if she's like kind of losing, losing her head or mm -hmm. her edge, like one, yeah, one of these daughters will take over, uh, the, the colony and sometimes, and this is what's interesting. And this seems to happen more often in these colonies than with bee colonies is that like the female m members, the, the ones that are sort of being bullied, these workers will try to sneak off and start their, like, reproduce and start their own colony, essentially. And they they can manage to do that. So it's sort of this, like, release valve of, like, mm. uh, of these workers sneaking off, starting their new colonies, which makes a lot of sense because in this, in this kind of eusocial uh, situation, it really is sort of just wh however you can manage, uh, manage it. So, like, the queen is using kind of brute force to make sure that she's got a lot of support for her mm -hmm. offspring, but other females, if they can get away 
with going off and and uh, reproducing, they will. And bees, in theory, probably would too. It's just like in the bee society, it's probably a lot more ironclad than these naked mole rat societies in terms of preventing that from happening. And what are the men doing in these naked mole rat societies? Are they also like not doing any work? I think that's a good question. I think they might do more work than than the than in bees. So like there is like brute force being used both in the naked mole rat society and in bees and ants and these eusocial uh, insects. Uh, so so that's another part of it. I think that adds on to like the kin selection. So if the kin selection is not enough, like you also have this behavior where you're basically having a a, uh, a tyranny which mm. can propagate we know in human society tyrannies can continue on for generations right. even if it's not right. to the benefit of individuals but um but in this case it's like it's helped even more out by the fact that genetically speaking uh they do like they do share a lot of genes even even the naked mole rats even though it's not uh the same as with um with the uh, bees, like they are often sisters and related to their mother in some way. But then the next theory, the the last theory we're going to talk about is the multi-level selection theory, which is basically that evolutionary selective pressures acts on all levels of life from genetic to cellular to an individual organism to a group of organisms. So Whoa. the analogy used is like a Russian nesting doll where it's like inside like that little, the tiniest Russian nesting doll, like that's on the genetic level. Your genes uh, will, will often compete and will, uh, you know, like there's selective pressures happening directly on the genes at the genetic level. And then you have uh, evolutionary selection pressures acting on your cells. Individual, like cells can compete and interact in interesting ways, which we're actually going to talk about a little bit more later. And then you have the individual organism, the organism made up of all these cells made up of all these genes, and then you have pressures acting on the organism itself. Like a cheetah has to go fast to catch its prey. You know, a, a, a bird flies so that it can like eat insects and escape predators. So you have that, the, the organism itself, like this collective of genes and of cells has evolutionary pressures acting on it. And then the bigger step is that a group of organisms has selective pressures acting on it. Like you have, say, um, uh, a group of like lemurs fighting with another group of lemurs over resources. Like you'll have selective pressures fighting at the group level and as well as on the individual level, as well as on the cellular level, as well as on the genetic level. So that's why it's that Russian nesting doll. Um, and so kind of like a over, probably oversimplified way to look at it, like in practice is like, you know, sperm will compete to reach the egg, right? So like this, mm -hmm. these cells fastest ones to reach the egg will end up being the ones that survive. Individuals will compete with other individuals or with their environment in order to reach food. And then groups will compete with each other in order to secure resources for their own groups. So the way that E.O. Wilson, who's the famous Ant-Man, or maybe I should say entomologist, <laughs> kind of uses this as a way to explain how altruism and these other, these other seemingly paradoxical behaviors can form. So he says, mm -hmm. quote, In a group, selfish individuals beat altruistic individuals, but groups of altruistic individuals beat groups of selfish individuals. So, you know, this can make sense for humans. Like if we have a group of altruistic individuals, uh, 
you know, that are all working together. And then we have like Jerry. I don't know why I'm piling on Jerry today, but you know, Jerry over there who's like being selfish and not cooperative, like the group of people who are all being cooperative and kind can end up beating, you know, Jerry, like who's over there just like, you know, you know, pounding a stone against a rock and screaming angrily and, you know, not right, picking whole, up his trash. A whole hunting party can take down a mammoth and that can feed him through the winter. Right. Whereas Jerry's not going to make that kind of kill on his own. Right, right. If Jerry's just spending all his time like trolling people on Twitter, like it's he's not going to get a mammoth. <laughs> but there must be multi-levels within the levels. Like if you're in an altruistic group and you're all helping each other, still you prefer to support the folks who like have more genes um, connected with you, right? Like you're going to help your kids more than other people's kids. So there must be like nuances there also. Yes, yeah, exactly. So, you know, these kinds of like... Each of these theories, in my opinion, while there's a lot of fighting going on, you know, in terms of like really figuring out. And when I say fighting, it's often like good natured, like actually trying to get to the truth of things. It's not just like uh, biologists being petty, although there's probably some of that. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's it, I think that all of these theories kind of interlock in a lot of ways. So like you have you can say have like a flock of birds, right, that like works together as a flock. Uh, but individual birds really do want to reproduce. And within mm -hmm. that, like uh, often like offspring of birds will stay around with their parents and help raise uh, their younger siblings, not only because it like is beneficial because they share genes with their siblings, but it also helps them train to become parents. So in that example, you have all of these layers of sort of like selection where you have the the flock doing better, all, you know, sticking together. And then you have the offspring helping raise the new generation of offspring that they are related to, um, but they are also selfishly getting a benefit from helping to raise their younger siblings because it trains them how to better raise their own offspring. So that's, you know, the individual need to reproduce as well being shown there. So it's really interesting. And it, 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 I think that like when you simplify things to like it's just kin selection or something, you do get uh, some complications that really can't be explained unless you are using all of these other different theories and, uh, and nuance, like you said, to try to explain it. Well, it's complicated. I can see why biologists get sort of heated about it. Are you saying <laughs> exactly. that they're all playing nicely? There's no really like scathing papers being written back and forth about it? Oh, no, there theories? are. There are. There are some... Uh, and it, it, like in a way, it's like I'm almost scared to talk about it because it's like I don't want to like come down on the <laughs> incorrect side or something because like I'm not I'm not necessarily an expert on mm -hmm. on things like kin selection and and multi layer or multi level selection. So I don't want to get something wrong and like start getting like, you know, knocks on my door in the middle of the night from angry <laughs> biologists. Well, you know, there's another level there also, because there must be like academic structures where people tend to support their students who believe in their theory and propagate <laughs> their theory of evolution, exactly. right? Exactly. Against the other academic biologists who are promoting their students to become professors. Um, and so there must be like competition between those groups. You have you have kin selection of your, your research assistants. I get it. <laughs> Bee society may be based at least partially on math, but can bees themselves do math? A recent study done at RMIT in Australia suggests that you can train a bee to do basic addition and subtraction. So say you're a bee in this study. You would enter into a maze where you're shown a group of blue shapes, let's say three blue squares. 
Then you enter a second room in the maze with two holes. Above hole A is four blue squares. Above hole B is two blue squares. The correct answer is A. You were supposed to add one blue square to the total for the correct solution. Of course, you don't know this initially because the researchers don't speak B. So you have to do trial and error, either getting a reward of tasty sugar or nasty quinine to help you figure out the correct solution. But then you're presented with a maze in which there are yellow squares instead of blue. This time, you have to subtract to get the correct solution. In the first room, you see three yellow squares, and you can go to the food behind the door labeled with either two yellow squares or the door labeled with four yellow squares. The correct answer this time is two yellow squares, and again, you're either rewarded with good food or punished with yucky food for the correct and incorrect answers. Well, congratulations, because if you're a bee, you'll figure it out, kinda. After a few hours of training, bees were able to pick the correct solutions doing basic addition and subtraction. Well, at least significantly better than chance. They probably only got like a B minus on their report cards. When we return, we're gonna talk about more animals who can do math. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Clever Hans was a famous German horse in the early 1900s who purportedly could count and do math. He could stomp his foot the correct number of times when faced with a math problem. 
Unfortunately, it turns out that Hans was no math whiz, but rather a body language expert. He could only get the math problem right if his owner knew the answer, and if he could see his owner, indicating there was some subtle facial expression or posture his owner would probably unconsciously exhibit when Hans was on the right number of hoof stomps. I'm pretty sure this still means Hans deserves that title of clever, but can other animals really do complex math problems? So what do you think? You think animals can do math? <laughs> I think humans struggle with math sometimes. <laughs> but yeah, I think if we think mathematically and you know human brains are similar to and human brains are similar to animal brains, I imagine uh, there must be some level of math that they can do. It must be a continuum of ability rather than solely a human um, facility. Yeah, I mean, like we don't have we don't have like an orangutan with a little like a motorboard hat and like smoking a pipe with a chalkboard doing like mathematics with like banana symbols, but pretty close actually, pretty close, maybe minus the pipe. Uh, in 2007, Duke University made macaque monkeys and college students take a math test. Which I think if I was a college student, I would be very <laughs> nervous to be outperformed by a monkey. I would be is I would just be like beside myself hoping that I performed better. And I probably wouldn't. So they were shown dots on a screen instead of numbers because it's kind of unfair to expect a macaque monkey to know what a number is. Like they don't know. Um the humans were told that they would be shown one set of dots and then another, and then they could select from a range of choices, and the correct choice would be adding the first set of dots to the second dot set of dots. So, like, say you're shown two dots, and then you're shown one dot, and then you have, like, you're on the final screen, you're shown, like, three dots, seven dots, four dots. The correct answer is three dots, because you've added two to one dots. We can't talk to monkeys and explain the rules to them, not yet anyways. We can't also bribe them with class credit, so they had to figure out another way to teach these monkeys to try to make do this math. So they would get treats in exchange for selecting the right answers. And it's interesting to me what they're measuring. Like they must be measuring the ability of the monkeys to generalize. So they mm -hmm. show them a bunch of patterns, reward them when they're correct. And then do they show them a math problem they haven't seen before and see yes. if they do it better than random chance? Yes, exactly. So they don't want to just train them to do the same types of math problems over and over again. So they are introducing novel math problems and training the macaques that they do want to get the math correct. So they found that not only were the macaques good at doing the math, they did almost as well as the college students. <laughs> So I think that we should be giving the macaques a degree and asking what the college students they've been up to. Clearly not studying. No, but I mean, it makes sense because as humans, we don't necessarily do, we're not at least taught to do math in terms of looking at groups of dots and then trying to add them and just visually doing the math really quickly. It, we have this symbolic system, which really works out well. We have incredible brains that are so good at like nesting concepts that it really cuts out a lot of this like uncertainty and having to make this really quick calculation of like how many dots are there because we can just we have the number five and we can store all that information within this concept of five and then learn you know uh five minus two is three i'm pretty sure <laughs> and so like 
But with the macaques, they don't have that symbolic uh, representation that they can fall back on. So it's actually not too surprising to me that they're good at just seeing a number of dots and kind of getting like what that quantity is. Mm-hmm. If anything, I would say that it, I would think that sometimes animals might even be better at that than humans because they have to rely on that much more. Whereas humans, we have symbolic thinking that we can use that animals don't always seem to be able to demonstrate. It's fascinating to imagine what's going on inside the monkey's brain. You know, has it developed some basic mathematics? Has it found some like tricky workaround to find the solution of these problems? Or is any workaround, is any solution to these problems then defined as mathematics? I can imagine, you know, the monkey sees the first group and then the second group and it solves the problem by saying, oh, I want the third group to be both of them. You right. Know, it's not like actually coming up with the concept of the larger numbers, just like recognizing that these two things have merged. But right, you could also argue that is com- math, right? Right, exactly. Com- and it's it maybe is partially just like combining these two visuals in their head and thinking about what that combined visual looks like. And some some more evidence that this is sort of a math sense rather than actual like human type math is that, well, what's interesting is both students and macaques struggled when the ratio of like the the math was like really close. So basically if you have a similar of dots relative to the total, so like when they had to choose between like 11 and 12 dots, because you have a lot of dots and then they're only off by one mm-hmm. versus having to choose between five and seven dots, uh, or even like uh, five and six is easier to differentiate between than like 12 and 13, because like once you get more dots, it's like e- even though they're both, both of those sets of solutions are only off by one, it's harder to see that with the larger proportion of dots than like you see five, you see six. It's a little bit easier to see the difference there. Absolutely. I know that just from like writing exams that you got to put potential answers that are pretty similar to really figure out if the students have any idea how to do it or if they're just guessing. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how the monkeys feel when they see like none of the above as an option. They're like, oh, man, that's That's, not fair. That's when they start throwing poop. (laughs) The students, too, to be fair. And so can the monkeys do more than just add? Do they test other math concepts like subtraction or multiplication? What can they do? Can they do integration? No, I don't think they can do integration. I, I haven't seen anything that suggests they can do multiplication. I think the most is, it seems like simple uh, addition, subtraction, and counting are sort of the things that uh, primates seem to be able to do. Um, but, you know, you might think like, okay, that makes sense, right? They're really close to us evolutionarily. Like, mm-hmm. it would make sense that sort like our basic animal cousins can do math. Um, But surely, like, really, a a stupid animal couldn't do math, like a chicken. Like, they're not very bright. But actually, there's evidence that chickens can count. And not only can they count, they can do it at a very young age. So they can count themselves before they've hatched. But I'm bummed. That's my my chicken (laughs) joke of the day. I've fulfilled my chicken joke of the day quota. So uh, right after they've hatched, uh, about three-day-old chickens are able to understand basic amounts and basic summation. Mm -hmm. Uh, So these baby chickens are presented with a game of peekaboo, or I guess peekaboo. Okay, that was my second chicken joke. I promise I'm done with chicken jokes. (laughs) Um, 
The the way that the study was done is based on the fact that baby chickens seem to like more stuff than less stuff, which is weird. They don't actually know why. Like you have some objects, like a group of objects, they will walk over to the bigger pile of objects than they will to the smaller pile of objects. And it's not really clear why they prefer more stuff. I guess they just like to live extravagantly. <laughs> They're greedy little chickens. <laughs> They don't believe in tidying up, right? They're not these clean freaks. No, no, no. They, uh, they like, yeah, like they are like more stuff. Give me more stuff. It's a little scary if you think about it. There are so many chickens in the world. So if they decide that they can demand more and get more stuff <laughs> and they rise up against us. Um, so they, these baby chickens are shown these two opaque screens where the researchers drop these little balls behind. Mm -hmm. uh, and so... Like when they're dropping the ball, they can see the ball, but once it falls behind the screen, they can't see anymore. Um, so when like they drop one ball behind screen A and three balls behind screen B and release the baby chicken, the baby chicken goes towards screen B because it's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get more balls, going to get some balls. It's uh, <laughs> just really excited about collecting little toys. It can both conceptualize and remember basic amounts. That is really exciting in of in itself. But then the researchers got more tricky with it. So they dropped like some balls behind screen A and then dropped some balls behind screen mm -hmm. B. But then they moved some of the balls from screen B back to screen A so that now there are actually more behind screen A than screen B. Whereas originally when they had first dropped it, there was a higher amount behind screen B. And could so, the chickens tell that this had happened? Yeah, so the chickens, the little chicks can't see behind the screen, but they can see the researchers' hands moving things. So like, mm. so say like they drop um, like one ball behind screen A and then drop four balls behind screen B. Then they pick up one ball from behind screen B, lift it up so the chick can see that ball, and then move it behind screen A, pick up another ball, mm. move it behind screen A, now, so the chicks have seen that they've just moved two balls behind screen B over to screen A. So now they should prefer screen A because now it's actually had more balls than screen B. But that would require them to understand that they're removing quantities from screen B, adding it to screen A, and remember that screen A now has more balls. And they do. They figure wow. that out like about 80% of the time. Uh, which is a really high success rate. Uh, so yeah, so little baby chicks can do very simple math. Uh, so yeah, sign them up for Harvard. Little baby chicks are definitely better at math than little baby humans. <laughs> well, there have been research studies done on human infants as well. Uh, and one of the problems actually with testing infants is they don't seem to have this weird preference for more objects that baby chicks have. So mm. like you put a baby like in front of some objects, uh, like a young enough baby, like even something with like candy, they're not necessarily going to just like crawl towards a pile with more candy or something when they're super young because they don't have a concept of like, you know, I, I need to get that more candy. That's mm -hmm. only for older children. So for really mm -hmm. young children, our best way of measuring their interest in something is eye gaze. Because the longer they stare at something, the more interested or surprised they are by something. They seem to like novelty. So that's mm -hmm. one thing we've established is they'll stare at something that is 
new or surprising to them. And so, like, basically when researchers show them a, the same kind of test that they do with the chicks, except that they will do, like, impossible math problems. So they'll put, like, one ball behind a screen, two balls behind another screen, move one of the balls back to screen one. So they would expect when you lift up the screens, screen A has two balls, screen B has one ball. But then if you lift the screens and, like, screen A still has, like, one ball and screen B has, like, three balls, they stare and they're confused. They don't understand mm -hmm. what's going on. Seems to be, like, like that's our best measure that we can get, that they can understand this math because they're, that's like, staring at it longer. It's pretty tough, I guess, to do experiments with infants. And so, like, kudos to anybody who figures out how to do these experiments. But I'm always skeptical that we're, like, really understanding what's going on inside these infants based on, like, you know, where their eyes are pointing. Yes. I get that it's the best we can do. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually telling us what the infants are doing, right? Right, it might right. Be that something totally different is going on. <laughs> it is a, it's a significant problem, right? Like, for the baby chick experiment, right? Like, mm -hmm. we have this weird, innate thing that the chicks do, which is we want more stuff, give us more things, we're going to Vegas. Like, these chicks uh, are ambitious little money makers. So, like, we can easily see that what preference the chick has for the most, the most stuff. Babies don't act that way. We can't, like, get a baby to do what we want necessarily in an experiment. So, yeah, the, the eye gaze is the best metric that we often have for really young infants. Uh, but it, it's certainly something that it's, like, definitely up to interpretation, like, what that means. Like, does that really mean they think it's a wrong answer? Um, you know, like it's, it at least indicate like the, the, I think most we can say is that it indicates, uh, when we compare eye gaze, right? Like if they spend less time gazing at something than something else, it, 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 it indicates they see the difference between the two things, right? Like mm -hmm. there is a difference in their, like something different is happening in their brain when they look at the thing that they're staring at longer versus the thing they're not staring at as much. Uh, whether that means they like get that it's a wrong answer, it's hard to say whether or not that's true, but it seems to indicate that it's like the best indication that we have that they're like not expecting that, uh, which is interesting because we also see that with physics problems. Like they see, they seem to have sort of this innate understanding of conservation of momentum. Like you have a tiny ball mm. hit a big ball and the big ball goes flying off. They stare at that longer than an appropriate response from the big ball, which seems to indicate maybe it's unexpected to them. Babies can do physics, you're saying. Exactly. See, wow. Daniel, even a baby could do your job. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I feel like an infant when I gaze at the wonder of the universe. <laughs> I know lions wouldn't strike you as such, but they're secretly nerds. Lionesses can tell the size of a competing pride based on the number of simultaneous roars. In a study, researchers found that with a great degree of accuracy, lionesses could figure out whether a recording of lions featured fewer or more potential rivals than their own group, and they chose to either run towards the speakers for a fight or to retreat based on whether or not they sensed there were more lions or fewer. Wolves, too, are able to distinguish between larger numbers of treats versus smaller numbers of treats and choose a can of treats accordingly. Unfortunately, in a research setting, it seems like dogs failed this test, meaning that in our domestication of dogs, 
we may have bred the ability to do math out of them. So sorry, Spot. But speaking of spots, when we return, we're going to find out the math behind animal spots. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. While spots and stripes like the coat of a leopard or tiger may appear flashy and attention-grabbing to us out of context in their natural environment, these clever markings help them blend into their surroundings, and it depends on the time of day, too. Leopards hunt at night in dark, tree-dense areas, so those spots help them blend into the shadowy, mottled, moonlit forests. And a tiger's stripes helps it hunt in tall grass, where the shadows and patterns of the grass help it blend effortlessly into its environment. And while being orange looks flashy to us, to its main prey, who have more limited color vision, the tigers can become practically invisible. So, Daniel, I think it's relatively well known, like, hey, you know, like spots and stripes serve this uh, evolutionary function, right? For, like, camouflage, mimicry... Uh, it can even be more complex things like in zebras, sort of this illusion, this barber pole effect where when you get a group of zebras, it's hard to tell which way the stripes are going, which makes it hard for predators to figure out the direction that the herd is moving. But the question is not like why they have these stripes in terms of like why there are evolutionary pressures, but like mm-hmm. how their bodies can even form stripes. Like how could that even happen? Uh, like why would their... Um, pigment or melanin producing cells ever arrange themselves in that way even by chance 
right? Because you have to create the organism out of the cells. And so the cells have to like organize themselves in such a way to make these macroscopic effects from the microscopic cells. That's pretty fascinating. Exactly. Right. As you probably know through physics, like when you have sort of a great number of things, right? Like you have a randomization of things over great numbers. It has this diffusion effect of kind of smoothing things out. Right. So, so like for for spots and stripes, it's a little bit surprising because you would think that like if you have random movement of like pigment cells, you wouldn't get organized patterns out of that. You would get some kind of diffuse pattern. And this has been a question for quite a while. In fact, Alan Turing was on the case way back in 1952 of the many things that he did, this was one of the problems he was interested in, which is fascinating. I never knew yeah. this about Turing. He, he accomplished so many things. So his paper, The Chemical Basis of Morphogenesis, uh, looked at basically these sort of mathematical models of how stripes and spots could occur in animal skin, fur, scales, doesn't matter. Just he was looking at whether the random movement and interaction of proteins uh, that might code for melanin or pigment could produce these patterns. And basically, he was able to show mathematically that you could have situations in which random movements of protein through tissue could actually result in an organized pattern. And it was this extremely advanced bit of math and evolutionary theory for the time. It's kind of incredible he was able to uh, come up with this. Of course, the issue, though, which Turing didn't necessarily factor into his paper, which, to be fair, I think the paper was more of a mathematical exploration. It wasn't literally trying to figure out, say, like how a zebra mm -hmm. gets its stripes. It doesn't take into account the fact that cells don't move in an entirely random way. They are actually like, I know that we don't think of cells as having autonomy, but they do. Mm -hmm. Like they actually move in um, like purposeful ways. So they have minds of their own, you're saying? They do in a way. And although they don't necessarily, they don't have brains, they don't have nerves, because of course, like our nerves and our brains are made out of cells. And <laughs> Even a single neuron is itself a cell. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they do have chemical reactions that happen throughout the cell that will cause it to move in certain ways and act in certain ways. So when you trigger a chemical reaction, I mean, that's how our brains work. You know, we have a chemical reaction that creates this synaptic firing. Um, so that so basically you can have a cell move in what seems like a very purposeful and almost cognizant way, but it's simply through chemical reactions happening throughout the cell. And of course, you scale that up to a whole organism, then the organism really does have this kind of like purposeful thinking and movement, which kind of ties back into what we were talking about, you know, earlier on in the episode where you have like cells on the cellular level acting in a certain way, having evolutionary pressures on them individually, right. and then you scale that up, and the organism made out of cells also has evolutionary pressures on it. And you actually see this happening rather beautifully in these studies of zebrafish. So uh, zebrafish are these cute little fish. If you've ever owned an aquarium or been to a pet store, you've probably seen them. They have these blue and white horizontal stripes. They're very pretty, really cute little fish. I've had a few throughout my aquarium owning days. Uh, but the research done on them is amazing. Like the amount of information we're getting out of these tiny fish is mind-blowing. So Professor Shigeru Kondo's lab of Osaka University 
found something incredibly cool when it comes to zebrafish's color-creating cells. So zebrafish have light color cells called xanthophores and dark color cells called melanophores. Mm -hmm. And these cells interact in a beautiful and incredible way, almost like a ballet. So the light cells have tendrils that they use to navigate and sense their environment. When these tendrils touch a dark cell, the dark cell will run away from the light cell because there's a chemical reaction that occurs in the dark cell that is triggered by the light cell's tendril that causes the cell to move away from that direction. But the light cell, meanwhile, gets a chemical signal to actually move in the direction of the dark cell that is now moving away from the light cell. And so this reaction, uh, it's almost like magnets, right? Like when you have a, a opposite polarity magnets or same polarity magnets, sorry, like and you push the same polarity against the same polarity, it'll push it away. Uh, you know, it's, it's like that, but with these cells. Uh, and like where one cell is chase, literally chasing the other uh, through this, this chemical reaction. And so what you get is like this ballet of these dark and light cells. And as they're chasing each other uh, in the zebrafish's development, it will create uh, this kind of straight line. It's like these, these bluish uh, lines that run horizontal across its body. And so it'll create this, these stacked lines of stripes. So you see this like incredible way in which like the cell's autonomy, like the way that the cells actually move, has this huge impact on animal patterns. So the cells themselves, they're not just like autonomous making up their own minds and they're not just random. You're saying they're sort of sensitive to their environment yes. and they cue off of effects and that can create these larger scale patterns. Exactly. Sort of like how a kid goes to, sort of like how a kid goes to lunch in elementary school and ends up sitting like at a table of other girls or at a table of other boys. And then you end up with like a girl table and a boy table because they're cueing off what everybody else right. is doing. Right. Yes, Exactly. Or in this case, like chasing each other around. Or like, you know, in Star Wars, you have like the light side chasing the dark side all the time or something. Maybe that's not a good Star Wars reference. I'm not sure. Uh, but, you know, this, it, you know, you would think then, okay, so Alan Turing got it all wrong. It's actually through these like chemical reactions in these cells that actually make them behave in these specific ways. But mm -hmm. that research was not for nothing. In fact, mathematical biologist Dr. Thomas Woolley is combining Turing's theory and the modern research on zebrafish into a new mathematical framework that aims to describe all sorts of natural patterns, from stripes to spots, even to tiny hexagons that these cells form that can create these very complicated patterns. Because if you look at animals, like from fish to octopuses to uh, to tigers and to, to like like the the ocelot, you have so many different interesting patterns. It's not just mm -hmm. stripes and spots. It's like these rosebud patterns and leopards and like all sorts of beautiful, interesting patterns in fish. It's it's really interesting to me that we're slowly starting to be able to find mathematical models that interact with our understanding of how the cells work and combining those to be able to describe like how, you know, say like a puffer fish's skin ends up being this beautiful uh, canvas of patterns. This is something which I think is really beautiful that you see all over science, actually, this emergent phenomena 
we have rules at sort of the lower level that govern how really small things interact. And then you get these incredibly complex, sometimes beautiful effects at a larger scale, um, which can be sort of simple to describe in their own level of mathematics. You know, in physics, we have like tiny particles which come together to make atoms, which make all sorts of different kinds of materials, which can come together to make chemistry and life and all sorts of amazing stuff. So I love seeing sort of science done at these different levels and seeing the connections between them. That's really fascinating. Yeah, it's I also just love the fact that you have this little tiny fish that my memory of the zebra fish is like my first experience owning fish. Like it came in this little tiny fish bowl when you like with this neon colored pebbles. And it's like, here's your little bag of fish food and you feed it that. Uh, and then I like did some online research and it's like, you shouldn't have this fish in this tiny little thing. <laughs> so then I got a bigger aquarium to put it in this like tiny, cute fish. But even in this single fish who just loved munching on the little sh little flakes that I gave it, uh, there is so much to learn about the yeah. way that its cells are interacting and how the math of how these stripes form that um, it may be decades before we even fully understand how the zebrafish's stripes form. So like there are so many biological and mathematical mysteries just in this single teeny tiny fish that it's like when you like think about all of the life on earth that would have this apply to them, it's, it kind of gives me a little bit of a headache, but in a good way. We might have to recruit an army of macaque monkeys and clever chickens <laughs> to help us with this research. All right, baby chickens and macaques, we got we got some serious <laughs> numbers to crunch. Stop stop throwing that poo and you stop pecking on the floor. Well, it's funny you talk about zebrafish because I had friends in grad school who were biologists and they always had to like go into the lab at 4 a.m. to feed the zebrafish. <laughs> and so I know that zebrafish are like a common thing in research. But when I was a kid, we had little fish with neon stripes on them, but we called them neon fish. Is that the same thing? No, they're a, there's the neon tetra. I actually have some of those right now in my fish oh. tank. Uh, those are a different fish. I wonder if they get along or if they argue about who's brighter. Well, that's I have actually had both of them at the same time. And mine, there was a little bit of chasing, like generally speaking, like fish can do a little bit of chasing tail chasing and nipping um that's sort of normal behaviors between like even within the same species like if you get guppies they're going to be constantly chasing each other <laughs> that's, that's how they bully each other so we have fish bullying and mm -hmm. naked mole rat bullying Bee bullying wow. naked mole rat bullying yeah <laughs> animals are all bullies no that's not the message of this le this episode it's the message is that it's altruism it, math is cool and math yes. explains kindness Yes, exactly. Math is love, right? Math is love. Exactly. Well, <laughs> on that note, thank you so much for joining me today, Daniel. Um, how about you tell the people where they can find you? Because I have a feeling they would really be interested in the stuff that you do. <laughs> well, thanks very much for having me on. Always super fascinated to learn about any aspect of science and unravel mysteries of any part of the universe. But normally, I'm a particle physicist at UC Irvine, but I'm also the co-host of a different podcast called Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, where we talk about black holes and neutron stars and tiny particles and the beginning of the universe and the end of the universe and all the zebrafish in between. <laughs> I like to think that some star systems are just a bunch of zebrafish <laughs> swimming out in space. In an infinite universe, everything happens, so there is a fish star somewhere of course, there's got to be a fish-shaped <laughs> galaxy somewhere out there. I wonder if stars bully each other. Oh, I mean, they do seem to chase each other, right? Sometimes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
You can find the show on the internet at Creature Feature Pod on Instagram, at Creature Feet Pod on Twitter. That's F E A T, not F E E T. That is something very different. You can also send me an email with your questions, comments, pictures of your cute animals, pictures of your zebra fish at CreatureFeaturePod at gmail.com. And thank you so much for listening. If you leave a rating and review, I read all of the reviews and they make me happy and they really help out the podcast. So I do appreciate that. Uh, and thanks to the Space Cossacks for their super awesome song, Exalumina. Creature Feature is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts like the one you just heard, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or hey, guess what? I don't know, wherever you listen to your podcasts, even if you're like listening to a seashell right now and somehow my podcast got in there. I won't judge you. See you next Wednesday. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.